one more sermon in Job for right now until we take a little break for, uh, to focus on Christmas in the coming weeks. Last Sunday, we looked at the first part of Job's response to Eliphaz's final speech. And we learned that, that Job was really beginning to see his trial and suffering in the right light as an opportunity for God to refine him like gold, to purify his life. And uh, chapter 23, I think, is really a kind of a turning point in, uh, in Job. And we got to focus on that and walk through that chapter. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Job's, the, well, really just the, the second half of his response to Eliphaz, um, where I think Job presents his finest argument against his friend's broken theology. Um, you know, the idea that the righteous, you know, experience nothing but good things in life, always just all blessings and prosperity and all that. They believe this, and they also believe that the wicked are always snuffed out by God in life, that they don't really have a chance to do much but be wicked for a season, and then they're immediately destroyed and, and these sorts of things. And in this next section, it's just Job really attacks that kind of thinking, probably his best argument against it. And uh, I would say that he literally blows it apart by showing how the wicked are able to commit continuous heinous acts without any sort of reprisal from God. Like, in other words, he just illustrates how evil the world is and how much evil wicked people commit and how they kind of go unscathed. And so he uses that reality to dispel the friend's theology. And, um, and I think there's a real yearning in this section, and, and there's a real frustration in this section as, as Job reflects on his community and the world we live in and all the evil that he witnesses, and, and, and God, in his mind, not doing anything about it. He's very frustrated with that. And he, he really is, is kind of asking the question, why doesn't God act? Why do these things keep happening? Why do they keep going on? How, how, how are these people able to do these things and, and all these injustices and wickedness and spread these things like, like a cancer? How are they able to do that? And, and, and why does God let it happen? Why doesn't God take action? That's really the, the thrust of this text all the way up to verse 24, and then it completely changes. It's almost as if Job comes back to his senses and remembers something. So uh, this is a, a really, really fascinating passage that just, some of it I'm not even really going to exposit. I'm just going to read a point and put the verse with it and move on to the next one because the things are just, the things that he describes are so self-explanatory. You know, you, you don't need me to unpack the meaning of this particular sin. I wouldn't even want to do that. So, um, but as Cameron said, I'm going to need help because I have 25 verses to cover, even though I'm not giving a lot of commentary on some of it. So um, take your Bibles and turn over to Job 24. We're going to look at the whole text. It's 1 through 25. I have some O's for you this morning. Not Cheerios, just O's. I love it when I say stuff like that. Now everyone looks at my wife because they want to see if she's going to cringe because I have some matching letters like matching luggage. 
Uh, so I've got some, some O's, four O's this morning for you. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, thank you for this morning. We pray that you're glorified and honored and praised through this message and that your church is built up and that those who are not yet saved would be saved by the power of your Holy Spirit. Teach us from your word. Be glorified during this time. We commit ourselves to you and submit to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin where we picked up, or we're going to pick up where we dropped off last week, and we're going to look at our first O. And uh, the first one's a kind of funny, but not really. It's Job's obtuseness. And we see this in verse 1. Obtuseness means denseness, his inability to put two and two together. Um, do you know anyone who's obtuse? Don't look at me because you're probably thinking of me, but uh, right? Yeah, obtuseness is kind of annoying, right? And, and this is where he displays this obtuseness. He, he does it in this question in verse 1. He says, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Okay? Really, in, in the first half of this verse, in verse 1a, Job is asking Eliphaz why God doesn't have set us, why, why hasn't God set aside specific times for injustices or for judging the injustices in this world? Why, why doesn't he have a calendar of events that, that lay out, you know, when the wicked are going to be punished for their wickedness? This is essentially what he's saying. He's literally suggesting that God doesn't have some kind of timeline that he follows, especially in terms of, of judgment. And, and I think that in his mind, he thinks that, well, if God had a timeline and communicated it with us, it would, it would help the righteous live their lives in, in, in a way that's kind of more sure and uh, maybe um, less frantic and anxious because they would just know when the wicked are going to get it, right? Okay, so uh, next Thursday, uh, the bottom's going to fall out for the wicked. Thanks for communicating that to me, God. This is his idea. This is his thinking. Um, I don't know what our response would be to if God made, you know, if, if God were to make all these things. In fact, I think he has made these things known, uh, not the specific dates, but he's made them known to a degree. But I mean, how would that serve us well? Would that bring you joy knowing that the wicked people that you've been praying for are going to be destroyed on Tuesday? <laughs> or would it cause you to pray more and hope that maybe they be saved before Tuesday? I don't know. But Job seems to think that, well, if I just knew all these dates and times, it would be so much better for me and for every other Christian. This is his thinking here. And in, in the second half of verse 1, he's really bemoaning the reality that God doesn't communicate such days of judgment to man. He's sad that he, he can't figure out when God has these things planned out. And he's suggesting that if God were to appoint such specific days, then the righteous would be just far less frustrated while trying to navigate through this world because they would know when sin's going to be dealt with and the wicked are going to be dealt with. And, but I don't know if, if, that were, if we had the specifics on those, if that would really help us like he thinks it would help him. Maybe he was thinking of his friends. Boy, they seem to be very wicked with what they're doing to me. God, could you tell me when you're going to destroy them? That would be really helpful. That's probably what he has in mind. And can we blame him? No, but he wants these dates and times, and, and he's upset that he doesn't have them, and he thinks that it would help him to have these things. And uh, God's silence, he thinks that God's silence on such matters basically leaves the righteous to wrestle 
with the idea that God just lets wicked people keep doing their nasty stuff and he doesn't do anything about it. Like, if you gave me the dates and times, God, then I wouldn't really think that you're letting people slide. I would know that there's an appointed time, and that would help me in your relationship. That's Job's thinking here. And to be honest with you, I don't think his thoughts here or what he's saying is, is you know, out of the ordinary. I don't. It sounds weird to want the dates and times, but um, I think it's, his struggle here is very common to all of us. I really do. I mean, we, we all wonder, don't we? I mean, maybe you'll agree, but we all, I think, wonder why the wicked are able to prosper and advance their nasty wickedness and go untouched. Have you never thought like that? Are you not thinking like that today with all of the current events and things that are happening, even locally? We all wonder why at times God does not intervene and bring the wicked to a swift end, don't we? Have you ever said, like, I can't believe so-and-so gets away with that. Why hasn't God hit him with a lightning bolt, right? I mean, we've all thought this. We've all felt this way. I felt like this about the driver in front of me. God, you could just somehow destroy the car but leave the life intact, but blow the car off the road so I can get past him, (laughs) Uh, right? We've all thought this. We've all wondered, how does evil prosper Boy, if I just knew when their end would be, that would be so much better. Hopefully, it's sooner than later. And I think it's a really insensitive, ungracious, unmerciful way to think. But I think when you're in the throes of this deep suffering like Job, you'll do anything you can to get relief. And if you think that this will bring you relief, then give me the dates and times, right? We all wonder the same thing. We all feel the same way that he does here. Um, are we not bothered by and, and, and sort of long for God to bring swift judgment at times as our culture just flies down the Romans one wormhole at light speed? I mean, it's like we're going from zero to total depravity in half a second. Our nation is doing everything it can to abandon morality. And we sit back and watch it and say, why do you let it continue, God? Why? Right? Could you... Tell me when you're going to maybe reverse all of this or just bring it all to ruin and bring me to you. That's Job's sentiment. That's his thought. That's his thinking here. And, and the problem with, with him he is he's, he's being a little obtuse and even a, a little reckless. Even the whole text, really, he's kind of reckless in his words. It's almost like at times he's, he's kind of charging God with letting, you know, you're kind of aiding and abetting the wicked God because you let them do what you, they do. He's, he's doing that here, too. I mean, he's getting dangerously close. But he's being, he's being very obtuse here for suggesting that God doesn't have specific dates and times marked out for judgment because we know that he actually does. Now, I don't know if it's going to be on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or exactly what time it is, but God does have literal dates and times marked out for judgments. This is something that Job did not understand. Seemingly, he didn't understand it. The Bible shows that God has an actual schedule for judgment. And of course, we have to remember that Job doesn't have a Bible. Job's relationship with God is is purely through prayer. He can't look at the Word and and look at the times that are marked out. Um, God knows exactly how long men will live, and God knows exactly what He's going to do with men when they pass away. Okay? You're familiar with Hebrews 9.27? A text that says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Okay, so when men and women breathe their last breath, 
they go right to judgment. Now, this isn't final judgment. That happens later. But there is a kind of judgment that takes place upon death for the wicked. So there's a bit of a timeline here that the Bible illustrates for judgment. When a person dies, they go straight to judgment. Okay? Job, again, doesn't seem to understand this. I think he does because he mentions stuff, but maybe he's forgotten here. This is a, a, is a truth. This is a reality that, that men are appointed to die once. God, God has their days numbered. There's a day on which they will die. And upon that death, that day and that death, they will enter judgment. That's a fact. That's a reality. I, I think maybe Job might have been a little bit ignorant of this truth. I don't know. He didn't have a Bible. But down in verse 19 of this very same chapter, he describes how sinners are snatched away by Sheol. That's the place of the dead. Well, that's judgment language that he's using there. Um, he also said that Sheol has bars like a prison cell, which is judgment language. That's Job 17, verse 16. I think these verses do reveal that Job had some level of understanding concerning God's timetable for divine judgment. It seems that, that Job believes that when a man or woman dies, they go to judgment, they go to Sheol, or at least the bad side of Sheol. It seems that that's his theology, but he's acting here like he has no recollection of that whatsoever. Um, in any case, what we need to do is be very cautious here not to exhibit Job's apparent obtuseness, his denseness. As Christians, we're not those who really even need to ask, you know, exactly when or at what time these things will transpire, but we can know for certain from Scripture that there is judgment coming, and we know bare minimum it comes upon death for the wicked, right when they breathe their last breath. They can go through life and have really very minimalistic trouble. There's no interference from God whatsoever, seemingly. And then once they breathe their last breath, there's judgment. And that's where all hell falls on them. That is a reality. So we don't need to be like Job saying, ah, you haven't made these things known to us. No, I have through my word. He just didn't have the word like we do. The Bible is clear on the matter. When the wicked die, they go straight to judgment. When believers die, they go straight to Christ, right? To be absent from the body is to be with Christ. So the wicked go to judgment and and essentially hell nowadays, and the righteous go to the presence of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Plus, God has additional days of judgment scheduled, according to Scripture, uh, upon Christ's return, uh, John 5, 25 to 29, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. It, those passages speak to a kind of resurrection unto judgment at His return. So, so what does that tell us? Again, God has a timetable. Do we know when Christ is going to return? No. We don't know that part of His timetable, but we can know for certain that when Christ comes, something happens. There is some sort of judgment. And of course, uh, premillennialists and, uh, and those sorts that have that kind of end-time view interpret certain passages to, to mean that there will be a judgment at the end of the millennial reign of Christ as well. And that's spoken of in Revelation 27 to 15. I think that uh, the, the, the resurrection and judgment that happens at the return of Christ and this idea of resurrection again and judgment at the end of Christ's thousand-year reign, Scripture could be speaking of the same thing there maybe. At least that's the way the amillennialists look at it. But we don't know for sure. But we do, do know that there are judgments coming. There's a great white throne judgment that's spoken about in Revelation 20. 
Do we know the exact dates and times? No, and that's what Job's after. But we know judgment is coming, absolutely coming. So he's obtuse in, in asking these kind of silly questions because he thinks it'll alleviate his pain somehow. Uh, he's acting kind of ignorant and very forgetful of some of the things that he wrote himself here that he seems to understand. Uh, the second O is his observations. This is the, the bulk of the chapter. We see this in verses 2 to 17. Um, and I would say that Job was, and I think real Christians should be, um, he was a very observant man, okay? Uh, he really watched what was playing out in his community, in his town of Uz, Ugh, they should have called it. But he, he, really, he really paid attention. You know, I, I, I think if he would have had a smartphone, he would have probably been checking the news. He probably spent more time on, on news apps than in ESPN, which is now a news app, by the way. It's not even sports anymore. It's really just a political arm. But he was in tune with what was happening in his world, in his community, in his neighborhood. He, he kept his eyes on the wicked. He watched wicked people to see what they were doing. And I think he did it so he could pray and so he could react or respond and provide aid for those who were being mistreated. But he was very in tune with what was going on. Not so much so that he was distracted because you can focus on all of the current events to the point where you forget to read your Bible. That wasn't him. But he was still in tune. He was still in tune. He kept a sharp eye on the wicked. He even talks about here in this next section, in these verses, he describes seven things that he observed the wicked doing. There's really 10 altogether, but three are subpoints under the last one. The, these are things that he watched the wicked doing in his community and things that went unchecked. Okay? I, 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 you guys are telling me that the wicked are destroyed instantaneously by God. I'm telling you that I have been watching them for years mistreat and sin and commit wicked acts and do all these demonic devilish things without, it, 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 almost with, it seems like with impunity. They're doing things and you're saying they're supposed to be dead and I'm telling you they're very much alive and they keep doing these things. This is this section here. Really, the point that he's seeking to make in the next section is, it's just very, very simple. If Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are correct in their theology, how is it that the wicked are able to do these horrible things and get away with them? If they only suffer God's justice and wrath in life, how are they able to commit and keep committing the following atrocities, the things that he observed, at least seven here? How is that possible? Shouldn't God be destroying them as you said? And, he just, and he's, he's pretty graphic here, to be honest with you. He lays things out. There's seven of them, and my, my point that I make captures the essence of each little section. That's why I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining. Do we really need to explain all these nasty sins? No. The first one that he identifies is this, and that is that the wicked steal property, and they, they're cattle rustlers. Gunsmoke era kind of stuff going on here. They rustle cattle. If you're familiar with the Old West, rustling cattle was a capital offense, and you would hang you would be, they would hang you by the neck by an oak tree. 
somewhere out in the wilderness. And so the wicked would do this. They would steal cattle. They would steal property. And he describes it like this in verse 2. Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. Moving landmarks is the idea. Back then, they would take stones and mark out your property. If you had six acres in Goshen, you'd have a stone over here and a stone over here and a stone over here and a stone over here. It would mark out your territory. The stones or a fence line, usually it was stones that marked it out. What people would do is they'd pick up the stone and, and, and move it inward so the guy next to you got a little bit of your property. This is what they would do. This is what the wicked did. They would move, what does he say? They would move landmarks. Landmarks are the, the, the physical things that marked out territory. And then obviously they would cease flocks and pasture them. So they would like, you know, if there was a bunch of cattle right here, they would take this landmark that's right here. So this is my, pro I'm a wicked neighbor. Not really, but uh, not the best neighbor sometimes. But here's my property and here's my landmark. Here's my neighbor's property, and there's a bunch of cows right over here. These black things are cows. This is what they would do. <laughs> i got to take care of my cows, right? Sorry, i got to put the stool back or Lily won't be able to sit. Right there. This is literally what they would do. They would move the boundaries so that they could get their mitts on somebody's cows. The wicked did this. Secondly, the wicked, and this is more intense and far worse than stealing a little bit of property and cows or whatever animals they had, goats and sheep out there. The wicked rob orphans and widows. Okay, it's quite a thing to move boundary lines and to take animals. But in verse 3, he describes something that is, that's like it's an intensified kind of wickedness. And it's, it's the robbing of, of, of robbing orphans and widows, like taking from the least of those in the community, right? He says... Uh, they drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. And that's just poetry for stealing from, robbing from the least of these. And the least of these in, in, in Scripture are always widows and orphans. Always. Right? Those, those are the weakest and most vulnerable people, those who don't have dads at home to protect them and, and, and those who no longer have their husbands around because their husbands have died and gone to be with the Lord. And, 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 and consequently, or not consequently, but a great side example would be the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were known for seizing and robbing properties from widows. These are the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were the most wicked, the most religious were the most wicked people in Jesus' day because they literally found a way to take properties away from those who lost their husbands, widows. Just sickening stuff. And so the wicked, they, they took property, they took cattle, they took from widows and orphans. Uh, number three, the wicked terrorized the poor. They terrorized the poor. We see this in verse 4. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. So among much of the wicked people, they, a great many of them had some kind of wealth and power, and they would just drive fear into the poor through mistreatment, through injustice, through exploitation. And obviously the, the, the poor here that, that are hiding themselves from the wicked, they could be the widows and orphans who are being taken advantage of. 
Like if you were a widow or an orphan and, and you know that there were wicked people in your community that used and abused your type, you would, you would be terrorized by these people and you would go and hide yourself when they show up because you know that you're probably going to lose something, right? So they terrorize the poor. You're, you know, you're, you're supposed to help the poor, not terrorize them. And the wicked terrorize them. And this next one's a little bit longer. Uh, the point isn't, but the section is. The wicked leave the poor to fend for themselves. That's really the meaning of verses 5 through 8. And Job describes it like this. He says, Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out uh, to their toil, seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. What, you, he, what he's saying here is that the poor were like hunters-gatherers. Uh, they didn't have the means to go to the markets and buy things, so like a wild donkey kind of roams around in the wilderness looking, you know, to, to looking for foliage or whatever, the poor would go out there and maybe try to find a rabbit or whatever. Again, kind of like the Old West, but they would go out and they didn't have a way to get food or something to eat in town, so they would go out into the wilderness, out into the countryside, and try to catch something to eat it. Well, there's a rat, you know, and they, they were, it was all survival. Um, verse 6, he says, They gather their fodder in the field, kind of like the wild donkey again, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked men. Uh, wicked man, the idea here is that at night, w wicked people in Job's territory, area, community, owned vineyards, and the poor would sneak into these vineyards at night and try to snag grapes that had fallen to the ground or whatever. They, they were doing everything they could to survive. Uh, seven, it says, verse 7 says, They lie naked. Lie, lie all night naked without clothing. They just, the poor that went out and, and, and hunted in the wilderness for food and, and gathered from, the, from the, the grape vineyards and all that, they also didn't have enough clothing to cover themselves, even to the point where some of them were naked out in the uh, wilderness. Uh, no covering in the cold, they, so they didn't have adequate clothing during the wintertime. Uh, and they are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. He's basically saying that the poor were homeless and they got all their food in the wilderness. Sometimes they would get loose grapes and stuff from a vineyard. They didn't have adequate clothing and they would stay in a cave and that would be their home if they could find a cave. But the big point that he's making is that the wicked did absolutely nothing about this. Nothing. You, you, I, I've got my, my, my house over here with my gate you know, by the way, I don't believe we should have walls, but I've got one around my house, and the poor are out there scrounging for survival, and I don't care about them. That's the mentality of the wicked here. Job has seen this with his own eyes. People laying in, 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 in dirt and, and filth and naked with sores, starving to death, and, and people that have the means and capability to do something about it who just step over them, out of my way. This is what he's illustrating for us. They just leave the poor to fend for themselves like wild donkeys. They have to go out into the desert and scrounge around. Number five, and this is, again, it kind of intensifies, the wicked kidnap children and hold them for ransom. Verse nine. And it's a, he does it in a parenthetical, which is... Interesting. Notice the parentheses. He says, There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast, and they take a pledge against the poor. Ultimately, what he's saying is that some of these wicked people are out there, 
And what they do is they find a nursing mother and snatch the baby and take the baby for ransom and try to get the nursing mother to pay them to get the baby back. This is what he's talking about. This sounds very much like the child abduction stuff that we have going on today, you know, where they're taking very young children and, and turning them into sex slaves and these sorts of things, the sex trades. And I don't know if they were doing anything sexual here, but they would easily find a nursing mother and, oh, she doesn't have a husband or whatever, okay, well, there's nobody to defend her, snatch her baby up, take the baby, hold the baby for ransom, and get her to pay. And most of the time that they were doing this, it was against these poor people that had nothing to give, so they never saw their child or children again. The children would be sold off. I think of Joseph with the Midianites, you know, right? There were slave traders in those days, in Job's day, and, you know, your kid would be taken away if you couldn't pay the ransom. Your kid would go away to the Midianites or somebody like that. Just sick stuff they did. Number six, the wicked withheld resources from the poor, and they ignored their cries for help as they die in the wilderness. This is illustrated through verses 10 through 12. Um, I don't know why Job keeps gravitating toward the poor. That's who he speaks about the most here, but maybe it's because they tend to be the most vulnerable. And then you see the wicked doing the most heinous things against those who are already really jacked up and hurting. And he says it like this in verses 10 through 12. They go about naked. Again, they don't have the clothing. It says without clothing, hungry, they carry the sheaves. The sheave is something that you could keep food in if you could find food. And he says, among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil, they tread the wine press, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help. And then I think this is where it's just insane what he says. He closes out this whole section. He is speaking of how the wicked mistreat the poor, let them go starving. I think if the wicked found out that poor people were coming into their vineyards and trying to take stuff, you know, for their own survival. The wicked would run them out of there, maybe even kill them. But at the very end of verse 12, he says this, and this is like devastating. Yet, the wicked do all these terrible things, yet God charges no one with wrong. So is Job, is he indicting the wicked here or is he indicting God? He's saying all these things happen. You guys know it. You've seen it just like I have. You guys cannot deny these things. And these terrible things are happening. And I mean, look, there's a naked guy over there on the corner begging for food. They're everywhere. And, and why doesn't God do something about it? That's what he says. You're saying that God destroys the wicked when they do these sorts of things. And I'm telling you, I see it all day, every day, and God isn't doing anything about it. This is what Job charges these men with, and really he's charging God with this in a sense. Like I said, he got dangerously close to stuff here. And the, the people are, are literally outside of the city dying and groaning and crying for help. And the wicked are like, out of the way, Peck. Get out of here. You bother me. They're like divies in, in Luke uh, 16 with... Poor beggar Lazarus. You know the story that Jesus tells. That's how they are. This poor beggar Lazarus. Jesus tells the, gives the illustration. He would lie at the, the gate of this wealthy man named Dives, or that's at least what he's called. And Dives would see him and go, ugh, and scum's back. Step over him, close his gate, and go about his business in his nice home. While Lazarus lie there dying. 
wounds all over him, scabs all over him from not showering and being out in the elements, dogs licking his wounds, which is actually a courtesy from a dog. It may sound gross to you, but that's a dog trying to clean him up because the dog knows that he's hurting. The dog knows the guy's in trouble, but Dives can't figure it out. And sometimes dogs are better than humans, aren't they? Any dog owners in here? You can testify to that? You're such a sweet little pooch. My neighbor, I'll tell you what. I'm going to teach you to poop on his yard. Can you do that for me? Unbelievable what's going on here. These people are dying in the wilderness. They do nothing. And God seemingly does nothing. Seven, the wicked despise daylight and do their evil deeds at night. Job's point here in verse 13. He says, there are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and do not stay in its paths. Okay, so, so you could look at light there as a spiritual thing, but I think Job is talking about actual day and night. He's saying that the wicked that I have witnessed and watched and observed, they don't really operate during daylight hours. They come out at night and do their stuff. It's easier to hide what they do at night, right? You know, you think of the witching hour. You know, it's like, well, to, if you ask any police officer, what's, what's, when is Modesto at its most evil, during the day or at night? Oh, brother, you don't even want to know what's going on at McHenry at night. You don't want to know what's going on at 3 in the morning. In fact, we had a, a friend of mine, Dale, who's a retired, 40-year retired law enforcement officer, and came and helped me do security for a, a women's event here one time, and we were sitting in the back, and, and he goes, Phil, I could tell you endless stories about things that have happened in the wee hours of the morning in this very parking lot. And it's like, well, on Sunday morning when I show up, I can see evidence of that because there's poop against the wall. And it... But he said, this parking lot is a hot spot for criminal activity. This one, ours. Hence the reason why we want to put up a fence that they can just climb over and then sin. At least we can make it harder for them. We can get them in shape, right? But it, it just, when do you think wickedness in your community is most concentrated? When it's dark. And that's what he's saying here. In fact, he goes on to describe three things that he has witnessed the wicked doing at night. He does this in verses 14 to 17. What do the wicked do at night, according to Job? They commit murder, verse 14. Mm. He says, the murderer rises before it is light. Talking about nighttime. That he may kill the poor and needy. And in the night, he is like a thief. So the wicked are the type of people that basically sleep all day, get high before they go out. Then they go out and do their stuff. They go out and harm and murder and do these various things. Job witnessed it. He saw it with his own eyes. They also commit adultery, verse 15. He says, The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he veils his face. So not only would the guy who wants to go out and cheat on his wife or the, gal who want, the wicked gal that wants to cheat on her husband, they, they would not only go out at night to do this and meet up with their you know, their flings what, or what have you, they would even veil their faces just as an extra precaution, right? right? That looks a lot like Fred over there. What do you think? Well, I can't really tell because of the veil. Hey, Fred, it's Fred. Look, he looked at us, you know. 
I mean, seriously, they would, you know, it's, it's nighttime, it's time for me to go out, and I, I got to go hook up with my girlfriend. I'm going, I'm going to work, sweetheart. I'll see you in the morning, right? Veil the face, go out, do the business. That's what they did. Job witnessed, I don't know how Job witnessed this. Maybe he had cable, I don't know. <laughs> I, if you want to go out and find this stuff, you will. You'll see people doing these things. And he witnessed it. And then thirdly, the wicked commit thievery at night. Thievery. Verses 16 to 17. He says, in the dark they dig through houses. It's the idea of just rummaging through houses. And I tell you, the difference between Job's day and today, they're doing it in the broad daylight today. They're going right into CVS in San Francisco and taking everything. The looters are out in full effect. You know, but in Job's day, they waited till nightfall to do this. It was a courtesy. <laughs> in the dark, they dig through houses. By day, they shut themselves up. Look at that. So they're not out doing this stuff during the daytime like in our day because we're special. They shut themselves in during the daylight. They're like vampires. I can't go out there. I'll glisten. I'll melt. But they literally shut themselves in during the daylight. Yes, that was a Twilight reference, and Philip's the only one that got it. They stayed at home, in their homes during the day, and at night they went out and then they would break into people's homes and do these things. He says they don't even know the light, so they're not even acquainted with daylight. They don't operate during the day. And he says for, in verse 17, for deep darkness is morning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. And I think here it has a spiritual connotation. You know, they, they, they love the darkness because they can commit their evil deeds, but they love darkness spiritually too. They just love evil and wickedness and these sorts of things. Essentially what Job is, is doing here, and this is a paraphrase, this is what he's telling Eliphaz. Through, through all of these observations and examples, all uh, uh, 10 of them really, if you put them all together, he is saying, if you are correct... Eliphaz, if you are correct about God judging and destroying me for hidden wickedness, for hidden sin, because that's what he always does, because that's what you've been saying for 23 chapters, how is it that other wicked people are able to steal, rob, terrorize, mistreat, kidnap, murder, and cheat on their spouses without any sort of interdiction from God? If, if it is true that God always destroys the wicked and you say that's why I'm getting destroyed because I'm hiding wickedness, then how are these people able to murder at night and to thieve at night and to cheat on their spouses at night and to treat the poor like this and to let them die in the wilderness and to let them go without clothing and, and, and to steal babies from nursing mothers? How are they able to keep doing these things if you are right? This is what he's saying. Do you see how he's destroying their argument? Absolutely obliterating it. He is saying if God always snuffs out the wicked like a candle in a hurricane, why am I the only one getting snuffed out? You say I'm wicked, you say God is snuffing me out like a candle in a hurricane, like a candle in a tornado, and that's, that's what God is doing to me, then why isn't he doing it to all these other people that are doing all these heinous things? And I think what he's essentially saying is maybe I'm not who you think I am. You think that I'm the sinner hiding sin, but maybe you just really don't understand. Clearly, you don't understand who I am. Maybe it could be that since I'm the only one who's apparently, quote-unquote, wicked, and the only one suffering for that wickedness, maybe I'm not actually wicked. Maybe I'm actually righteous, as I've said. Maybe I'm innocent. Maybe there is such a thing as righteous suffering, Eliphaz. This is what I've been trying to teach you, but you're not listening. You're not listening. You're not interested in learning the truth because you just have to cling to your old way. That's what's comfortable and easy. This is what Job is teaching them through all these observations. 
And he's, he's really just using not just observation, but just logic. You know, if Steve says that, man, the wicked are always going to get destroyed in this life, I could easily say, open the headlines and read the first five articles, editorials. George Soros has been committing evil for decades, and I see him still breathing and prospering. How is this possible? If you're saying it always happens that way, I'm telling you it doesn't, Steve. And then Steve would immediately repent and buy me a burger. <laughs> and Job really drives this point home in the next portion. He really does. He, he does a juxtaposition kind of thing here. And this is where he objects. So that's the third O, Job's objection. We see this in verses 18 to 23. And what he does this time is very clever. Job was a lot smarter than his friends. He actually takes their words and uses them against them. Um, he just uses their own words against them to decimate their argument. And he, what he does is he quotes statements they had made about the speedy destruction of the wicked, right? He quotes these statements and then shows how the wicked aren't destroyed in a speedy fashion. <laughs> That's what he does. And uh, he, he begins it with this phrase, you say. So really what he's doing is he's going to go through it. It's like, you say this, but I say that. You say this, but I say that. That's kind of how this is structured. In fact, I'll use you say in front of every one of the quotes that he uses from them. And this happens all the way through verse 20. Verse 18, he comes right out and says, you, speaking of the wicked, you say, swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their vineyards. What is the meaning of this? The wicked do not prosper. Nobody buys their wares. Nobody gives them the attention. Uh, they, you know, whatever it is they conjure or put together, whether it be crops or business things, uh, they produce no portion for them because their portion is cursed, right? This is what he's saying. You say that the wicked don't prosper at all, verse 18. Verse 19, you say, I'll add this you say to the beginning, you say, Drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. So um, in, in this, he's basically telling his friends in verse 19, in the, in the same way that the, the heat of, of, of springtime, when the spring heat comes in, the sun starts beating down on the land again and melts all the snow, and that happens very quickly. The snow is here for one moment, and then it's gone the next, right? And that's kind of like how it is here in our lower elevation mountains here in the Sierras. He's saying as quickly as that heat snatches away the snow, that's exactly what Sheol does to those who sin. Sheol, the place of death, it just... It just comes so quickly on them. They don't even have a chance to commit their next sin. They die and go off to Sheol. You say that's how it is. Verse 20, you say, the womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. Okay, the idea that, that they don't leave behind any sort of legacy and you know, once they're, they're snatched away instantly and quickly without any sort of notice because there's a brevity here, once they go away and go down into shield, then the worms find their corpses nice and sweet. They just devour them and eat them up, and nobody remembers who they are or what they've ever done. And then God finally breaks the cycle of wickedness by destroying off those wicked people. You say this is how it works. This is Job's charge against them. And then in verses 21 to 23 we see his objection. He declares, and this is ultimately what he's saying in these verses. 
you say these things. I say the wicked do the most dastardly things like wrong the barren, childless woman, and do no good to the widow. Okay, you say that the wicked do all these things. Well, I say that the wicked do these things. I kind of agree with you. And then, and then what he's saying is, but I do not see God destroying him. Instead, I see him prolong the life of the mighty by his power. So you say that when people rob the childless and do these things to the barren and do all these evil things, God destroys them instantly and throws them in shield. What I'm telling you is that I have seen God use his own power to prolong their lives. That's what I've seen. You've seen this. I've seen this. And he says, I've seen God prolong their lives by the might of his power so often. I've seen it to have such a great effect on them that they actually rise up when they should be despairing in life. Like, I've seen calamity strike the wicked, but God has raised them up to the degree that it really doesn't impact them. So you say this about them, they're wiped out, they go to Sheol. I'm telling you the opposite is true. He says, in fact, it looks as if God gives the wicked a sense of security and support. You're saying God immediately strikes them down and judges them and destroys them. I'm telling you, I have seen God. It seems like he's giving them a sense of security and some kind of report, despite the fact that his eyes are on all their ways. I think Job is being sarcastic here, right? You're making this great argument about how God deals with the wicked instantly and just destroys them and doesn't let them prosper and they just can't even get a foothold anywhere and all that. But I am telling you, I've seen them do the most heinous things at night and at nighttime and the murder and all the things they've done and dealing with barren women and taking children. I've seen them do all these terrible things and yet it seems like God is, is, is prolonging them with the might of his power. He's even, in a sense, blessing them with a sense of security and support, despite the fact that he's watching their every move. This is what Job... Do you see how Job is really right on the line of, of propriety? Like he's right on the line of charging God with supporting evil? <laughs> it's not his intent. He's just trying to illustrate to his friends that they are testifying to the way God works in the world against the wicked. And Job is saying, I have seen the exact opposite. Contrary to what you believe and keep telling me, I have seen the exact opposite. That's all he's doing. That's all he's telling Eliphaz here. Now we can move to the fourth and final O. And this is the outcome, or Job's outcome, I should say. And we see this in verses 24 and 25, we'll look at 24 first. This is, this is where he pulls a total switcheroo. Now, you're saying this, but I've seen this. And it seems like God upholds them with his power and gives them security and all this stuff. He lets them do what they do. And, and even when they should be despairing, they seem to be happy about life. And it's, it's a bad situation. It's the opposite of what you guys are trying to say about me here. And then he turns away from that kind of thinking altogether and makes this statement in verse 24. This is his outcome. Speaking of the wicked, they are exalted a little while. Hey, no doubt. They live prosperous lives and they're able to do these things and they have power and God upholds them in a sense. He says, and here's brevity, right? And, and the judgment that comes in quickly. He says, and then they are gone. Just gone, snatched away. And he says, and they are brought low and gathered up like all others. 
They are cut off like the heads of grain. Boom. Ultimately, what he's telling Eliphaz is, you know what, yet... I don't agree with what you're saying. I've seen the opposite happen, but I do agree with something that you're saying here and that the end and the outcome for all the wicked is always the same. If they make it all the way through life, when they die, they're cut off like grains of wheat. This is what he's saying. The, the outcome concerning the wicked is always the same. They might be exalted for a little while, but they will eventually be gone. If they are exalted for a little while, they will eventually be brought low and gathered up like every other wicked person. This is what Job is teaching. If they are exalted for a little while, they will be, uh, eventually be cut off like heads of grain. And this is all judgment language here in verse 24. So it kind of seems like Job is denying the idea of judgment for the wicked for a while as he unpacks his list. But in verse 24, he totally affirms that it's coming for all the wicked. And if we go all the way back to verse 1, he'd sure like to know what day that's going to happen. Right? Boy, that'd be handy. Could you destroy my three friends next Wednesday? I have a dentist appointment. And while I'm getting my molar drilled out, it would be nice to read the report. I don't think he felt like that about his friends, but he probably should have. Job did not deny that God can bring swift judgment. That's what his friends were saying, and he did not deny that truth. God can bring swift judgment, but he denied the idea that that's how it always happens. Because all you have to do to know that God does not bring swift judgment in every scenario is take a look around and be observant, right? And just watch and see what people are doing and what they're saying and the stuff they're spreading and how they keep going and keep going and keep going while becoming more and more wealthy and more and more powerful. All you have to do is have a set of eyes and a brain. He's not denying that God can bring swift judgment to the wicked anytime he chooses. He's not denying that at all. He's just simply arguing that it isn't normative because he has seen the wicked live long and prosper like Spock. Right? He's seen it. Have you seen this? I have. Job was a realist. He was observant. And this is where he differed from his friends, right? They believed that the wicked will be judged and destroyed by God during their lives and obviously after death, but Job believed that the wicked can enjoy a decent life but will inevitably face divine judgment upon death or on judgment day. That's the difference between these two, uh, between Job and his friends. And Job's theology is more biblical than the friends. That's verse 24. Verse 25, listen to this. This is great. He says... Everything that he said thus far and the point that he's illustrated and made, if it is not so, if what I'm saying is not true, who will prove me to be a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? And Job challenges Eliphaz, basically, prove me wrong. I challenge you to prove me wrong. Now, if Eliphaz were observant, he would see the wicked prospering, right? If he just opened his eyes and looked around, he would have to agree with Job. Because yes, on occasion you'll see a wicked person be brought to instantaneous ruin by God, but so often that's not normative. You will see them prosper and continue on and almost as if God is holding them up himself, which causes you to wonder why God isn't doing what you think he's supposed to do. If he were just a little observant and opened his eyes, he would see the wicked living long, plentiful lives. 
He would see their beautiful, healthy, successful children. Boy, they get all A's over at Modesto Christian. Matt's thinking, I went there. Why did you say that? Tim, too. But, you know, the wicked do have, tend to have beautiful, successful children. You know, the, the wicked, he, if Eliphaz opened his eyes and looked, he would see the wicked, their businesses flourishing. Hmm. So much so that they can build spacecraft and start taking the wealthy into space. Amazon. He would see their promotions. He would see their estates growing. Eliphaz would see their sins and injustices against others, right? If you're observant, you will see this. And what he might not see is God's immediate judgment and the destruction of these wicked people. That's something that he might not see, even in his lifetime. If he would just open his eyes and take a look around, get a dose of reality. He would be forced to conclude that Job was right and innocent, as Job had said. And he would have to do probably something that's maybe even more difficult than that because it's not easy to acknowledge that you're wrong and that your friend is right or whatever or that he's innocent. It's not easy to do that. Uh, but he would have to do that if he really was observant. But he would also have to change his theology and add that third category of righteous suffering because Job is a living illustration of that before him. And as I've said before, if you don't understand or have that category that the righteous do suffer in this life, you'll never get Jesus or the gospel because he was the most righteous man to ever live, and he suffered. He suffered. If you don't understand Job's righteous suffering, you'll never, 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 ever, ever understand the righteous suffering of the Lord Jesus. Never. Which I think is the biggest point of this book, because all of Scripture points to Jesus. Closing. I have an observation of my own I'd like to make. I've been making them already, but... I have one to wrap up with. Job witnessed the wicked committing a plethora of heinous sins and injustices in his day, and it really bothered him. You know, it, it's a good thing to be observant, but it's a double-edged sword. A lot of Christians just want to bury their head in the sand so they don't see what's going on around them, so they don't have to process or deal with reality and things that are happening around them. And I can kind of understand why they do that. It's a little bit less stressful of a life. But at the same time, I mean, if you're observant, now you can maybe figure out and prayerfully figure out how to minister to people and how to pray accordingly. But Job was observant, and I think it cost him emotionally because when you survey, you see just... It, it bothered him, and it should bother us, what we see playing out. He saw the theft and the, the kidnapping and the murder and the adultery and all these sorts of things. And, and Job, he wanted God to do something about it. But what he actually witnessed was the same wicked people not being destroyed by God, but prospering and leaving behind a trail of innocent victims in their wake. That's what he saw. He saw the poor um, suffering because they were poor, but even uh, worse, being completely mistreated and terrorized by the wealthy wicked. Uh, 
he saw the adulterers going out at night, the murders. He saw all these things, and he didn't even have the news. And he saw it all, and it really bugged him. It really bugged him that the wicked would do these things and get away with them, you know? And I think in a parallel fashion, we, we feel just as he does. Do we not? Are we not seeing the same kind of wickedness in this day and age? Are we not seeing the wicked prospering as Job did? In fact, I think we, we see it in much greater frequency than Job did because Job didn't have smartphones and news apps and everything else. Job had to kind of look around to see it. All you've got to do is open your phone, open an email, We see it today, the wicked prospering. We see lives being destroyed by greed and self-preservation. We see infanticide, abortion. We see invasions. Gosh, I think we're trying to set the record maybe next to England on how many nations that this nation can invade and destroy and disrupt. We see investment scandals. Um, we see imposing restrictions, right, just all of these restrictions and guidelines being placed on us and intensified mandates and all these things that are done in the name of public safety and health, which have nothing to do with public safety and health and everything to do with control. Are we not witnessing the eradication of morality in America? I said this earlier. Are we not seeing that? At one time, America was pretty concerned about morality and its citizenry being moral. And today it's like, well, we've flipped the script and now it's, we're all about seeing how immoral we can be. Or they're trying to redefine it altogether. This nation has been turned over by God and it is in the hands of wicked men. Because when the people forsake God and choose immorality, God turns them over to wicked leadership. And this country is in the hands of wicked leadership, and it was in the hands of wicked, lead, wicked leadership under Trump. It's not just a Biden thing. He doesn't even know what he is. Elder abuse. Think about the nation. It's been turned over. Think about the entertainment industry. What happened to the silver screen? Hollywood is a hotbed for perversity. Disneyland affirms LGBTQ, woke, all that. Who would ever imagine? Walt Disney is tumbling in his grave, spinning transsexual princesses. Hollywood, sick, filthy, disgusting. What about our educational system? Is it not in the hands of wicked people? Hmm? Well, we don't need arithmetic. We don't need reading and writing. We need demonic devices like CRT, and we need, to, we need to educate the littlest lambs on transsexualism so they'll be able to accept that when they get to a certain age. The things that kids are being taught today, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I think, like Job, we want God to do something about it, don't we? Hmm? Hmm? We want him to intervene. And we pray for this. Some of us pray for it day and night. 
We're not praying save America. We're just praying save people so, so our culture can, 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 can change. And we pray and we pray and we pray and we want God to intervene, but what happens? Nothing. Nothing. It gets worse. The wicked commit more wickedness. The powerful gain more power. Right? The wicked continue to prosper and spread their vile perversions even to our children. Hmm. And we say to ourselves the same thing that Job said to himself, why doesn't God act? We say, we cannot continue much longer on this trajectory. That's how Job felt in his day. It's how we feel today. But Job did remember and then declare an unshakable rock-solid truth at the end of his response to Eliphaz, didn't he? The wicked are exalted a little while and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others, all the other wicked. They are cut off like heads of grain. God, I'm upset that you're not doing something about it right now, but I know you will one day. That's what Job is saying here. Job is saying, make no mistake, they're doing all these heinous things, but the wicked will perish and have their day in God's court. Judgment will be handed down. Justice will prevail. And the saints will rejoice and praise God for their vindication, Revelation 18.20. For now, we must keep our hope in Christ who has overcome the world through his death, burial, and resurrection, John 16, 33. And I think that we need to be ready for his return. I do. I don't think us as Christians are ready for that. We're living the kind of life we ought to be living in readiness for his return. We just want him to intervene. Well, the best way that Christ can intervene would be to return. But are we ready for his return? We ready ourselves by repenting of our unbelief and trusting in the person and finished work of Christ alone for our salvation. You haven't done that. You're still in your sins and you're still wicked. (laughs) You may not be doing some of the things that Job described, but you're still a wicked person before a holy God. You're still headed for judgment And yet 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Today is the day of salvation. What must you do? Repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. Acts 2.38, Acts 16.31. And I add to that, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke 3.8, that shows that you are, you actually have repented and trusted in Christ, that you keep living a life that's repentant, that you live for Christ. That's what the true believer does. They live for Christ for Christ. They ready their self for Christ's return. They long for Christ to return. Yeah, they want people to get saved, but they also know that God will save all those whom He intends to save. That not one person whom God has chosen to save will be lost. If Christ came back tomorrow, all the elect that are coming in would be in. Nobody's been lost, only those that are wicked and outside of the fold. And that's sad and it's terrible. I get it. I get it. 
It's a good thing that I think Christ tarries is coming, but He's doing it to allow the number to come in as the Holy Spirit brings them in. Don't, don't ask, why doesn't God act? It's not, is that helpful? How is that helpful? Know that God will act. Know that He will act. He will. And sometimes He does it in this life decisively. He makes an example of a wicked person. Sometimes He does. Don't think that some of these wicked people that we've seen in the news headlines just die of natural causes. <laughs> Sometimes God just smites someone. He does that. Is that something we rejoice in? I don't know. God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. Why should we? But I think as real Christians, we should all long for justice. Right? We should. But let's make sure that we're living our lives for Christ and ready for His return that we're ridding ourselves of things in our life that would be, they're just, not, they're just not pleasing to Him. You want Him to come back and catch you in something? Looking at something stupid on your computer? Come on. Seriously. Amen? Let's be ready for Him.